The Invitation by Orion Mountain Dreamer. It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dream, for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are squaring your moon. I want to know if you have touched the center of your own sorrow, if you have opened, if you have been opened by life's betrayals or have become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine and your own, if you can dance with wildness and let the ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, to be realistic, to remember the limitations of being human. It doesn't interest me if the story you are telling me is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself. If you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul. If you can be faithless and therefore trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty, even when it is not pretty, every day, and if you can source your own life from its presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand at the edge of the lake and shout to the sliver of the full moon, yes. It doesn't interest me to know where you live or how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair weary and bruised to the bone and do what needs to be done for the children. It doesn't interest me who you know or how you came to be here. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. It doesn't interest me where or what and with whom you have studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moments. A special thank you, um, Sarah and April. Um, I know it's been a really tough year for you um, and it's been a particularly tough month. Um, I know because um, Sarah and I have attempted many conversations and they've been interrupted by some really important troublesome events in her life um, because we first started chatting about having this service last fall and then Sarah's grandfather got COVID um, and then we she dealt with um, the hearing for which our congregation encouraged dropping the charges for the um, charges against her <clears throat> and many others for um, peaceful protests um, and then along came a very traumatic and um, interesting um, police hearing for um, Officer uh, Jervis Middleton um, disciplinary hearing for which Sarah is intimately um, acquainted um, and probably unjustly so. Um, and at the end of that hearing, Sarah learned that her beloved grandmother is dying. And so she became the primary caregiver for her grandmother who's now under hospice care and Sarah's taking a break from that care this morning to be with us. 
So in listening to your poem, you talk about having the strength, even though you're weary to the bone. So thank you, Sarah. I know you've got a lot on your plate and you're dealing with significant issues. So, so welcome. Welcome and thank you for being with us this morning. Yes, thank you for welcoming, the, welcoming me to this space this morning. I'm happy to be here. You know, you said in your poem that you don't care about, you know, your degrees and what school you went to. But, you know, we really do want to know just a little bit about that for you. I know that you're a nurse and you're, you know, uh, you're a full-time mom, but you have some special training and some special education in um, being a change agent. Yeah, so um, after getting my bachelor's um, in nursing and working several years as a nurse, I decided to go back to school and get... Um, actually two different master's degrees. And one of them is in social responsibility and sustainable communities, which I tell people is my change the world degree. Um, and then I also got a master's in organizational leadership. And I feel like those two things, those two degrees go hand in hand um, in the social justice work um, that I'm doing as a civic change agent in this community. So that's, if somebody asks you what your profession is, you tell them that you're a change agent? Yes, I do. Yes. And what kind yes. of responses are you getting to that um, when you say, and they say, well, what's a change agent? Uh, well, for, you know, a lot of people tend to be kind of acquainted with the different work that I've done over the years since moving back home approximately six years ago. And I mean, some of that involves engaging public officials and, you know, citywide meetings, whether it be city council meetings or other task force meetings uh, for various things that are going on in the community. Um, but also engaging other community groups in the community itself. Um, that can range from organizing community cleanups, right? To simply gather as a community and go into the community or Juneteenth celebrations are also, as many people are aware, um, civil disobedient direct action, also known as protest. Good for you. Well, a change agent. I'm willing to call you a change agent and I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, I understand um, that you grew up in the black church and that is the gathering place and the soul of your community um, in your religious upbringing. Um, how did your religious upbringing in the black church influence your willingness to be at the, one of the forerunners of the protests? Well, I'm old enough um, to have been involved, you know, deeply involved in growing up in the Black church when the Black church was still very much the center of the community. Um, and it gave me an opportunity to learn how to public speak and to engage um, with folks and to also build community um, and the power of being able to come together um, with a shared vision on one accord, so to speak. Um, so I definitely credit growing up in the Black church um, and being a large part of who I am in my work at the given moment. I know that in some Black churches that women aren't allowed to be in the pulpit. Um, um, so that must be difficult for you um, in some ways. Um, in some ways, uh, you know, part of my background is that I spent about five years married to a preacher within the Black Baptist church. And, um, you know, I feel like spirit led me to an understanding that, you know, I myself have a message for the people um, and a calling on my life to go forward with. Um, and so I've stepped into that fully, right? And I believe um, when you walk in that, there are spaces that are created for you, such as this morning. Yeah, um, I think um, I share something 
you know, that is dear to me is that the church is more than the pulpit. Um, Very much so. And so you found, you found your own pulpit. You created your own pulpit. Very much so. The church, I mean, I have definitely learned um, over the years that the church does exist outside the four walls. Um, and so much of the work that I do, um, whether it seems as such or not, um, is very spiritually based, right? To get in touch with and to see the spirit of each individual that we encounter in this work. You know, it seems to me, you have a lot to fear. Um, your, your livelihood is on the line now because of the charges um, for your peaceful protests this summer, also for your engagement in the whole um, incident with um, Officer Jervis Middleton. And um, I mean, I understand that your phone and all of your personal life was kind of invaded um, and um, that your phone is um, in some office in Homeland Security as if you're some type of a, you know, um, terrorist. Um, so your livelihood is on the line. So there's got to be some fear. You have to be experiencing fear. I, I can't imagine that you wouldn't. Yeah, uh, there, there's some fear um, in some ways and, and some fear um, in wondering how things will work out because I am a mother of six children, right? And you always want to make sure that you're able to provide for and care for your children. Um, at the same time, there's a deep abiding faith in knowing that when you walk in your purpose, right? Things will happen as they should. There will be a way provided. Um, and knowing that, you know, what's, what energy you put out returns to you and that pouring into the community, the community also supports and helps provide for you. Um, and so I trust that truth will prevail um, in these situations and in these circumstances when it comes to the charges. And while it might take some time, all truth comes to light. Um, and that as the truth comes to light, um, my livelihood will no longer be threatened as far as being able to return to work as a nurse. I think we, you know, I first started noticing you this summer, you know, in the, in the protests, you were in the news a lot. And then I started seeing your Facebook posts and I started watching you real, real carefully thinking, boy, that woman has some real courage. She's got some, she's got some energy behind her, um, that I found quite fascinating that day after day, you could just be out there. Um, but it was long before this summer that you, and long before George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, that you started this work. I mean, you've, you've been at this for many years since six or seven, am I right? Yes, um, and so actually, I mean, a lot of my social justice, justice work began as a teenager and then was reignited with um, the murder of Mike Brown in Ferguson when the Ferguson uprising began for all of the protests that initiated in the St. Louis area and then spread nationally and internationally. Um, and that felt like it happened to me in so many ways. I had lived in Hazelwood just outside of Ferguson, Missouri, um, where, where this police killing happened. Um, and so, and I had actually just moved back home from St. Louis. And so I felt the need to return to where had my second home had been in St. Louis and to work directly on the movement. Um, and then I returned to Lexington and applied what I learned. And that's that's kind of been the fruition of the past six years of work. Um, and, you know, 
very similar to if anybody has watched um, the do recent documentary, um, Judas and the Black Messiah, um, about uh, the Black Panther Party. And there's um, a saying in there that Fred Hampton did that I'm high off the people, you know, and it's the power of the people and it's coming together with a shared vision on one accord that sustains me and sustains the work as far as being able to return to the streets every night and knowing that the young people needed us present, right? Um, you know, because I'm a mother at heart, I'm a mother of six children. And so knowing that we needed to be there for our children to, to show the way, to lead and to guide, right? And to make sure that we stay centered um, in spirit and stay focused on, on justice and not um, any kind of violence or anything like that. One of the things that I find fascinating, and I had a conversation with our minister, Brian Chenoweth, about this in one of our collegial conversations, is in watching you um, at council meetings and watching your posts on Facebook and your videos. Um, and I found, <clears throat> excuse me, I found myself falling into my own trap. Because um, I thought, you know, if Sarah Williams wouldn't use so much profanity if she wouldn't call people names, um, and she's just not very polite sometimes, and if she would like be more like me, she'd probably get further. And then I realized that I fell into my own trap, that being polite, being courteous, all of those things hasn't really served your movement very well for 400 years, has it? It has not, um, you know, I have learned you know, aside from very, in a very politically correct kind of way, attending city council meetings and speaking without um, the extra adjectives um, that I've sometimes been known to use in the streets, um, you know, doesn't tend to disturb comfort zones as deeply as we need to, to kind of plant a seed of change, right? Um, and so, you know, in the streets, yes, there was, there was profanity and, um, you know, sometimes you kind of reach a point of rage and disgust that needs an outlet, right? And it's like that raw emotion coming through. Oh, that raw emotion definitely coming through and, and not, not attempting to filter that, but to let it to come forth, right? Um, and knowing that there are a lot of people who, who prefer that I not use that language, but also understanding that that outlet um, aimed where it needs to go is much better than it turning to possibly physical destruction and actual riots, which we saw happen across the country, but we also did not see happen here in this city, right? Well, I, it, was a, it was a learning experience for me and, and caused me some, some good time of reflection because I've been known to use all the words that you use. Um, and I just, I, I just thought, well, a, that's Sarah's way of doing it. But I also wonder, does that, does that throw you into the stereotype of an angry black woman? It, it does, but in so many ways, um, you know, there are people who already placed me there long before they saw that um, the protests in the streets over the summer um, and saw that flowery language being used, you know, on a rather regular basis. Um, I remember being introduced to the police chief at the time, which was uh, Barnhart, two, chief, two police chiefs ago at a city council meeting. Um, and his response to me was, 
you know, every time I hear Sarah, you yell. And it's like, no, not in the city council meeting. I wasn't yelling. And I think, you know, a lot of people are well acquainted with what my voice sounds like yelling in the streets. Um, but understanding in that moment that he had already formed that opinion and applied that stereotype um, in that moment, even without the yelling or with, without profanity. Um, and so, yeah, that does tend to be a stereotype on, placed on black women and one that I've encountered, whether working as a nurse or um, as a civic change agent in the community. And so you're always mindful of that. Um, but I'm also someone who just doesn't feel like I should filter myself to remain um, within political correctness. Yeah, um, I imagine that you're not gonna change and that if you did, it wouldn't be an authentic change. Right, I, I show up as my full authentic, authentic self and I credit my grandmother who I'm caring for at the moment. Um, she taught Sunday school for over 40 some years. And I mean, my grandmother has always been someone that speaks the unadulterated, unfiltered truth. Um, and I think we all have to be okay with showing up as our authentic selves, even with our flaws, right? Um, because that allows everyone else to show up that way as well. So, how do you know when you've been heard? You know, you're in a lot of legal trouble, and I know you're not going to bow out of that. Um, and in a few year, um, in a few year words, you know, you well, you're in a lot of legal trouble, and that's not going to go any time anyway. That's not going to go away anytime soon. And the powers keep trying to silence you. They steal your phone. They um, don't allow you to meetings. You're not invited to the table. Um, how do you know when you've been heard and why do you think they're trying to silence you? Um, there were several moments in the streets where we knew we were moving their needles, so to speak. Um, and, and the mayor, Mayor Gordon has recognized that um, she formed the Commission on Racial Justice and Equality in response to the sustained protest in the streets. So there have been several different moments at which we realized, okay, we have been heard and they are listening um, for the list of demands that we had originally created in May of 2019 and met with city council on. It was actually during the protest over the summer of 2020 that city council directly responded to those demands. So even though we spent a year with no response and feeling like we weren't heard, um, civil disobedient direct action had a way of moving that to the point where they had to listen and not only listen, but respond. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of like continuing to be the voice crying in the wilderness. Um, whether you're invited to the table or not, you continue to speak that truth. Um, and really, you know, it's about engaging with community and activating people power, right? Um, because it's the power of the people that can shift towards justice um, for all of our elected and public officials who seem like at different points they don't listen or they won't invite certain people to the table who don't go along with a predetermined agenda. When we activate the power of community and we activate the power of the people within the community, we can begin to shift some things. And I think that we have seen that play out um, specifically since the protest of 2020 um, going into this year and knowing that there were clergy from all walks of faith. There were all races and backgrounds present in the street, especially on that May 31st of 2020 when we had over a thousand people in the street. So sometimes it's about stepping back and taking a bird's eye view of things 
um, and understanding that, you know, the arc of the moral universe, right, bends towards justice. And we have to take a step back and see how that's continuing um, to be so. Do you think people are afraid of you? Do you think people are afraid of you? Afraid oh, of you? Much, or Very much so, very much so. Um, and, and I think some of that is that for some people who fear me, um, I think some of that is ground in the fact, you know, beyond um, seeming aggressive, right, and very direct, is that truth, the truth of where we're at right now, the truth of racial injustices, the truth of racism, white supremacy, and how it functions in our society um, is not a comfortable conversation. Um, it, it, it's not comfortable at all. And I think that there are a lot of people who would rather uh, keep on the blinders and remain in ignorance. And so that I do think some people are intimidated and do fear me. As you know, a minute ago, I, I mentioned that I can't imagine that you're not just exhausted. Um, and in one of our previous conversations, I, I, I was really pretty surprised when you told me that sometimes you're afraid. Um, tell, tell me a little, tell us a little bit about that fear and where you find the courage to go on in spite of that fear. Right, what's so this, I know in um, being asked to, to join you in service today, there was, there's a little bit of fear in entering into unknown spaces um, that are not familiar. Um, that can be somewhat fearful. Um, and even taken to the streets every night, there's always this moment of, when we were in the streets, of needing to center myself, right? And to flow from spirit. And, you know, that is where my fear subsides, right? Um, and also understanding that everything is energy, spirit connects all life, and making sure that I stay in tune with that, because then that connects me to everyone around me, right? You can always find common ground and a common thread. Um, and so that has a way of diminishing fear. And then standing on the shoulders of our ancestors um, definitely alleviates fear, because even though we, you know, myself in particular, are facing so many unknowns um, in fighting racial injustice. Our ancestors had to endure so much more, so much more. In a previous conversation, you told me a story about a black man going to the gallows um, with a smile on his face. Um, will you tell us that story? And then will you tell us what that smile means? Yeah, so in my research, you know, you can't seek to shift things and to create change without knowing the history of where we've been to know where we're going. And so part of the history of Lexington um, is that there was an innocent Black man named John Bush that was lynched here based on a lie, right? Um, and there's a newspaper article about uh, when he was lynched he went to the gallows with a smile on his face and it took five years and 11 months in several court cases um, before Lexington got to the point of deciding that they were going to lynch this man. And the newspaper article says that when he went to the gallows, he went with a smile on his face. And so I believe in the grace of divine synchronicities is what I like to call them and understanding that everything is connected. Um, and that second time that we were arrested, uh, there's actually 
a moment where they're handcuffing me and there's this smile on my face, right? And, you know, that can, when I read that story about John Bush, it was like a connection across space and time and understanding that when you know the truth within yourself, there's a joy and a peace in that. Even for John Bush as he faced his own death, knowing the truth, right? Um, and knowing that all these years later, it's come forth, right? Um, and also knowing for me that, that the truth will come forth, you know, and being arrested for simply walking across the street, there was a smile as I turned to the officer, you know, kind of laughing like, for what? You know, because we know the truth. We know the truth of what we're fighting for. And we also know that our fight has been nonviolent um, and will continue to be so. And so um, that smile comes from a very deep abiding peace in knowing the truth. Say that one more time. I said that smile, the smile comes from a deep abiding peace in knowing the truth. That um, story, I think, is a really good segue into something you told me about your graduate studies. Um, and yet when you're trying to decide what to write in your thesis, um, and you ask the question, you know, like, how, how did we end up? How did we end up in the place we're in? What happened? How did we end up here? And where did we go wrong? You asked that question as part of your graduate study and your thesis. What was your answer? There, there seemed to be, I really wanted to understand, right, where we as a human race in our line of thinking and our spiritual understanding took a wrong turn. And what I found is that there's this distinct moment, um, you know, about four or 500 years ago, where our line of thinking shifted from understanding that all life is interconnected um, to attempting to assert that you can separate the parts from the whole. Um, and that is largely where we find ourselves at the moment is that we have many indigenous cultures across the globe who still have this deep understanding and wisdom and spiritual knowledge um, that all life remains interconnected um, and whether that's human life or life in nature. Um, but then when we look at our systems, what I call the hegemonic heteropatriarchal white imperialist power structure, when we look at that system and how it functions, it separates the parts from the whole and that we don't take time to understand and acknowledge that clean water and clean air and sustainable living is directly connected to our ability to sustain our own life, human life, right? Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's, that's the large lesson that I took away from writing that thesis and understanding that ultimately the revolution is spiritual, um, that we have to return to this remembered ancient wisdom that all life is interconnected and live our lives from that understanding and from that knowledge. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I think you kind of encapsulated our understanding of universalism in a few succinct sentences. I'm grateful. Thank you. Is there anything else before we wrap up here that you think we need to hear? Um, I would hearken to a quote from Maya Angelou that says that love liberates and also bell hooks. Um, one of my sheroes that says love heals um, and understand that the revolution is ultimately love. Yeah. 
Revolution is ultimately love. And the spirit is at the heart of that revolution. Very much so. Yep. Uh, Sarah, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I'm, we, we, we are grateful. We are grateful thank for you. your presence in our community. And April, we're grateful for your presence in our community and know that we've got your back. Thank you so much.